Chapter Twenty One of the Alaskan. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Lars Rolander. The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood. Chapter Twenty One. Stampede had started with one of the two saddle-deer left at the range. But to ride deer back successfully and with any degree of speed and specific direction was an accomplishment which he had neglected, and within the first half-dozen miles he had abandoned the adventure to continue his journey on foot. As Tatpan had no saddle-deer in his herd, and the swiftest messenger would require many hours in which to reach Amuktulik, Alan set out for his range within half an hour after his arrival at Tatpan's camp. Stampede, declaring himself a new man after his brief rest and the meal which followed it, would not listen to Alan's advice that he follow later, when he was more refreshed. A fierce and reminiscent gleam smoldered in the little gunfighter's eyes as he watched Alan during the first half-hour leg of their race through the foothills to the tundras. Alan did not observe it, or the grimness that had settled in the face behind him. His own mind was undergoing an upheaval of conjecture and wild questioning. That Rosland had discovered Mary Standish was not dead was the least astonishing factor in the new development. The information might easily have reached him through Sandy McCormick or his wife Ellen. The astonishing thing was that he had in some mysterious way picked up the trail of her flight a thousand miles northward, and the still more amazing fact that he had dared to follow her and reveal himself openly at his range. His heart pumped hard, for he knew Rosland must be directly under Graham's orders. Then came the resolution to take Stampede into his confidence and to reveal all that had happened on the day of his departure for the mountains. He proceeded to do this without equivocation or hesitancy, for there now pressed upon him a grim anticipation of impending events ahead of them. Stampede betrayed no astonishment at the other's disclosures. The smouldering fire remained in his eyes, the immobility of his face unchanged. Only when Alan repeated in his own words Mary Standish's confession of love at Navadlook's door did the fighting lines soften about his comrade's eyes and mouth. Stampede's lips responded with an oddly quizzical smile. I knew that a long time ago, he said. I guessed it that first night of storm in the coach up Chitina. I knew it for certain before we left Tanana. She didn't tell me, but I wasn't blind. It was the note that puzzled and frightened me, the note she stuffed in her slipper. And Rosalind told me before I left that going for you was a wild ghost chase as he intended to take Mrs. John Graham back with him immediately. And uh, you left her alone after that? Stampede shrugged his shoulders as he valiantly kept up with Alan's suddenly quickened pace. 
She insisted, said it meant life and death for her. And she looked it, white as paper after her talk with Rosland. Besides, what? Sokwenna won't sleep until we get back. He knows. I told him. And he's watching from the garret window with a 303 Savage. I saw him pick off a duck the other day at 200 yards. They hurried on. After a little, Alan said, with a fear which he could not name clutching at his heart, "'Why did you say Graham might not be far away?' "'In my bones,' replied Stampede, his face hard as rock again. "'In my bones!' "'Is that all?' "'Not quite. I think Rosland told her. She was so white.' and her hand cold as a lump of clay when she put it on mine. It was in her eyes, too. Besides, Rosland has taken possession of your cabin as though he owns it. I take it that means somebody behind him, a force, something big to reckon with. He asked me how many men we had. I told him, stretching it a little. He grinned. He couldn't keep back that grin. It was as if a devil in him slipped out from hiding for an instant. Suddenly he caught Alan's arm and stopped him. His chin shot out. The sweat ran from his face. For a full quarter of a minute the two men stared at each other. Alan, we're short-sighted. I'm damned if I don't think we ought to call the herdsmen in, and every man with a loaded gun. You think it's that bad? Might be, if Graham's behind Rosland and has men with him. We are two and a half hours from Tatman, said Alan in a cold, unemotional voice. He has only a half a dozen men with him, and it will take at least four to make quick work in finding Tautuk and Amuktulik. There are eighteen men with the southward herd and twenty-two with the upper. I mean, counting the boys. Use your own judgment. All are armed. It may be foolish, but I am following your hunch. They gripped hands. It's more than a hunch, Alan breathed Stampede softly, and for God's sake, keep off the music as long as you can. He was gone, and as his agile boyish figure started in a half-run toward the foothills, Alan set his face southward so that in a quarter of an hour they were lost to each other in the undulating distance of the tundra. Never had Alan travelled as on the last of this sixth day of his absence from the range. He was comparatively fresh, as his trail to Tatman's camp had not been an exhausting one, and his more intimate knowledge of the country gave him a decided advantage of a stampede. He believed he could make the distance in ten hours, but to this he would be compelled to add a rest of at least three or four hours during the night. It was now eight o'clock. By nine or ten the next morning he would be facing Rosland, and at about the same t hour Tatpan's swift messengers would be closing in about Tautuk and Amoktulik. He knew the speed with which his herdsmen would sweep out of the mountains and over the tundras. Two years ago, 
Amok Tulik and a dozen of his Eskimo people had travelled fifty-two hours without rest or food, covering a hundred and nineteen miles in that time. His blood flushed hot with pride. He couldn't do that, but his people could, and would. He could see them sweeping in from the telescoping segments of the herds as the word went among them. He could see them streaking out of the foothills, and then, like wolves scattering for free air and legroom, he saw them dotting the tundra in their race for home and war, if it was war that lay ahead of them. Twilight began to creep in upon him, like veils of cool dry mist out of the horizons, and hour after hour he went on, eating a strip of pemmican when he grew hungry, and drinking in the spring coolies when he came to them, where the water was cold and clear. Not until a tell-tale cramp began to bite warningly in his leg did he stop for the rest, which he knew he must take. It was one o'clock. Counting his journey to Tatpan's camp, he had been travelling almost steadily for seventeen hours. Not until he stretched himself out on his back in a grassy hollow where a little stream a foot wide rippled close to his ears did he realize how tired he had become. At first he tried not to sleep. Rest was all he wanted. He dared not close his eyes. But exhaustion overcame him at last, and he slept. When he awoke birdsong and the sun were taunting him, he sat up with a jerk then leaped for his feet in alarm. His watch told the story. He had slept soundly for six hours, instead of resting three or four with his eyes open. After a little, as he hurried on his way, he did not altogether regret what had happened. He felt like a fighting man. He breathed deeply, ate a breakfast of pemmican as he walked, and proceeded to make up lost time. The interval between fifteen minutes of twelve and twelve he almost ran. The quarter of an hour brought him to the crest of the ridge from which he could look upon the buildings of the range. Nothing had happened that he could see. He gave a great gasp of relief, and in his joy he laughed. The strangeness of the laugh told him more than anything else the tension he had been under. Another half-hour, and he came up out of the dip behind Sokwena's cabin and tried the door. It was locked. A voice answered his knock, and he called out his name. The bolt shot back, the door opened, and he stepped in. Navadluk stood at her bedroom door, a gun in her hands. Keok faced him, holding grimly to a long knife and between them, staring white-faced at him as he entered, was Mary Standish. She came forward to meet him, and he heard a whisper from Navadluk, and saw Keok follow her swiftly through the door into the other room. Mary Standish held out her hands to him a little blindly, and the tremble in her throat and the look in her eyes betrayed the struggle she was making to keep from breaking down and crying out in gladness at his coming. It was that look that sent a flood of joy into his heart, even when he saw the torture and hopelessness behind it. He held her hands close, 
and into her eyes he smiled in such a way that he saw them widen, as if she almost disbelieved. And then she drew in a sudden quick breath, and her fingers clung to him. It was as if the hope that had deserted her came in an instant into her face again. He was not excited, he was not even perturbed, now that he saw that light in her eyes and knew she was safe. But his love was there. She saw it and felt the force of it behind the deadly calmness with which he was smiling at her. She gave a little sob, so low it was scarcely more than a broken breath, a little cry that came of wonder, understanding, and unspeakable faith in this man who was smiling at her so confidently in the face of the tragedy that had come to destroy her. "'Rosalind is in your cabin,' she whispered, "'and John Graham is back there somewhere, coming this way.' Rosalind says, if I don't go to him of my own free will. He felt the shudder that ran through her. I understand the rest, he said. They stood silent for a moment. The grey-cheeked thrush was singing on the roof. Then, as if she had been a child, he took her face between his hands and bent her head back a little so that he was looking straight into her eyes, and so near that he could feel the sweet warmth of her breath. "'You didn't make a mistake the day I went away?' he asked. "'You love me?' "'Yes.' For a moment longer he looked into her eyes. Then he stood back from her. Even Keok and Navadlok heard his laugh. It was strange, they thought, Keok with her knife and Navadluk with her gun, for the bird was singing and Alan Holt was laughing and Mary Standish was very still. Another moment later, from where he sat cross-legged at the little window in the attic, keeping his unsleeping vigil with a rifle across his knees old sukwenna saw his master walk across the open and something in the manner of his going brought back a vision of another day long ago when ghost kloof had rung with the cries of battle and the hands now gnarled and twisted with age had played their part in the heroic stand of his people against the oppressors from the farther north then he saw Alan go into the cabin where Rosalind was, and softly his fingers drummed upon the ancient tom-tom which lay at his side. His eyes fixed themselves upon the distant mountains, and under his breath he mumbled the old chant of battle, dead and forgotten except in Sokwena's brain, and after that his eyes closed and again the vision grew out of darkness like a picture for him, a vision of twisting trails and of fighting men gathering with their faces set for war. End of chapter 21 of The Alaskan by James Oliver Curwood Read by Lars Rolander